The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So good morning. It's nice to be here again at this group. And today we begin a three-part series called Dimensions of the Path, or it could also be called the Holistic Path. I kind of changed it as I started going through it. Is the volume okay? Is Okay, great. So in this series of three talks, the idea is to explore the different um, elements of the path and how they relate to each other. Because the Buddha offered us a very interconnected and complete path that intertwines with all aspects of our lives. And so I hope to draw out some of the ways that that's true so that we can tune into the dimension that's most relevant for us right now or just end up with a better understanding of how the teachings connect together. So the Buddha laid out a path of practice for people to follow if they're interested in ending suffering. That's kind of the, the idea. So the Eightfold Path consists of eight steps, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And that word right, uh, I actually like the word right, and that's the one I'll usually use. Some people um, have a response that that feels like right and wrong and that isn't comfortable. That's definitely not the intention of the word. It's, it can also be said as wise, wise view, wise intention. And as Gil often says, it, it has a connotation of being appropriate. So like the appropriate tool for a job, this is the right way to do this part of the path. And so it has an ease to it, a sense of, Ah, this is, this is the way forward. So these elements of the path are often grouped into three different sets based on the domain that they address. So there are three that are related to ethical conduct or virtue. These are right speech, right action, and right livelihood. So these are called the sila steps of the path. Sila means virtue in Pali. And that's the area that we're going to focus on today. Um, Three other elements are related to mental development or meditation. Those are right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And we'll focus on those next week. And then two of the steps of the path are related to our, somehow our understanding or, um, or, or view, and these are right view and right intention, and these are the, the wisdom or panya steps of the path. So we'll talk about those in a couple weeks. But actually we'll be addressing all three elements of the path in all the talks because of the fact that they're interrelated, and I, I intend to point out some of the ways that that's true. Although the path is laid out neatly in this, in this linear way, I think most of us know from experience, even if you've only practiced for a little bit, you will quickly learn that um, things do not always unfold in a neat and linear way on this path. And so 
again, there's a sense that these elements are linked together and it's not that we start at the beginning and we have to finish the first step before we do the second and so forth. They all uh, grow and develop together. However, it is helpful to, to, to have these different domains and to think about these three different areas of practice um, just because they help us to focus a little bit what we're working on. You know, they can help to, um, to refine a, a large and seemingly abstract teaching into something practical that we can actually do from day to day. So let's, let's talk a bit about sila, about ethical conduct. Right speech, right action, and right livelihood are just different facets of um, behaving in a virtuous and ethical way in our regular life. Note that all of them have to do in some way with our relationships. So this implies that, certainly right up front, that the path is comprehensive. It's meant to touch all aspects of our life. Uh, It doesn't only happen on the cushion, um, and it doesn't only happen when we're sitting down and thinking of ourselves as a Buddhist practitioner, but it's really something to carry with us at all times. There's also an understanding in this section of the path that somehow we have to get our our behavior and our speech and our relationships in some kind of order before we proceed to meditation. Now, it's not totally linear, as I said, but... You know, there's, the, um, there's a reason why these steps come just before the meditation steps. It's interesting that in Asia, uh, people may practice for a long time, maybe even a whole lifetime, um, at the sila steps. And that's their, their whole, much of their practice, before they consider themselves qualified to meditate. They... Um, they may not be interested in trying meditation because they're still they feel like they're still working on really refining that sila and also generosity and loving kindness and other elements like that. I'm remembering that uh, Gil told a story once of a colleague of his in grad school who was an Asian Buddhist. And uh, at one point he asked if she had a meditation practice or what, what she did. And she said, oh, oh I, don't, I don't meditate. I'm, I'm working on, on that, working on getting to that point grad student in Buddhist studies. (laughs) So we tend to ignore that and just jump right in. But (laughs) So speech is so important. Um, The Buddha thought it was so important that he separated it out into its own step on the path. And it was put bluntly, actually, by an Asian master named uh, Ajahn Lee Damodaro, who said, if you can't control your mouth, there's no way you can hope to control your mind. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, in, in positive terms, right speech is uh, speech that is true, beneficial, timely, and kind. And, um, or in, in uh, the words of Tan Jeff, it's speech that is trustworthy, harmonious, comforting and worth taking to heart. So I think we know that we would like to speak like this and we don't always achieve that, right? Um, it's also possible to think of, of right speech as 
um, in the areas that we wish to avoid in sort of a more a negative um, or uh, refraining mode. So that would mean that right speech means avoiding lies, divisive speech, harsh speech, and idle chatter. Those are kind of the areas that are singled out as not useful, not helpful, not beneficial, not true. So I'd like to offer a couple of tips for how to practice right speech in a practical way. And maybe we'll have some examples as it goes along. I, I would like to share as many practical examples as we can uh, during this series of talks. But one of the key useful ways to practice right speech is, is to pause. It's very simple um, to insert a pause before we say the next thing that we're going to say. And at first, uh, don't worry about what you have to do with the pause. Just get in the habit of pausing for a moment before saying the next thing. This actually, in and of itself, uh, creates space in conversations and creates ease if you're not jumping in, tumbling your words on top of the other person's words. It can create some space in the conversation and actually... Uh, make it a more useful conversation even without any other element of practice coming in. So it's nice just to get in that habit. And then secondly, there's, um, there's reflection on our words and what might be called preflection before we speak. I don't know if that's a word. Um, but it means using the pause that we've developed the habit of having to consider why we're about to say the words that we want to say. Um, So there's a strong connection here to intention. It's not an accident that right speech comes just after right intention on the path. It's very clear in the act of speaking uh, what our intention can be, right? It's it's kind of a moment when we're actually forming words and we can, it's a, a moment when it's fairly easy to connect with What is the intention? Do I feel anger behind these words? Do I feel fear? I'm trying to make things okay. I'm trying to um, aggrandize myself in some way. I'm trying to stop another person from what they're saying. I'm trying to um, connect with this person and share something that I think will help them. What What is going on there in your mind as you're about to speak? It's also possible to reflect and notice in the moment as we're speaking and also consider afterwards uh, what the effect of our words was. Did that actually help? (laughs) Did the other person open up or did they kind of close down? Um, Did I feel like I was elevated and oops, maybe they felt put down? What, what's going on as I'm speaking? What effect is it having on the room? It's important to note in doing this practice that right speech may not always be pleasing or nice kinds of speech. Um, I'll say that a little bit carefully because um, speech that's gentle and pleasing is said to be often right speech. But it's not a requirement, actually. Um, The Buddha said quite clearly that 
words that are displeasing or may not be, maybe a little hard for someone to hear, if they are nonetheless true and beneficial, then we can look for the right time to say words like that in the right way to say that in a gentle way. And this is useful. I know for sure I've benefited from being told uh, about certain things that I wasn't seeing in my behavior or my speech. And I was so grateful that somebody found a way to point that out to me. (laughs) And, you know, sometimes it was a teacher and sometimes it was a friend or somebody else. But it's... um, it's not necessary that right speech be pleasing always to the other person. There's a difference between being nice and being kind. But even if we're speaking words that may be challenging for someone else, it's important to speak them with a heart of loving kindness from ourselves. So not with any intention of closing them down, shutting them down, Um, but really, truly from a place of wanting them to be happy, wanting them to be happier, freer, and the same for ourselves. So I'd like to focus in on an example of a common realm of unskillful speech in modern society. And it's one that I, it's so, when when I noticed it and started working with it, it became so interesting to me, I gave it its own name. So I call it, Bonding through mutual outrage. (laughs) Anybody know what this might mean? (laughs) It's very common um, kind of speech is to be with people that we know agree with us on certain things and political views perhaps or social views or ideas about our workplace and to have a session where we um, um, somehow... Uh, collectively agree on all these things we don't like (laughs) together, right? We don't like this politician. Let's complain about it. We don't like the U.S.'s policy on such and such. We don't like the way at this place of work um, people aren't recognized, blah, blah, blah. Um, It can be, and it feels cathartic in a way, and it it can be uh, bonding to realize that, yes, this other person shares this same frustration with me, Um, But at the end of it, uh, it's really divisive speech, isn't it? It's it's intended to create an us and a them, and the them has a problem, and we're going to bond by noticing that they have the problem and we don't. So it can also be harsh. It's definitely divisive, and it can also be harsh speech. And these are clearly pointed out as, as unkind, unwise, not the path ways of speaking so what's interesting is that I was able to stop doing it. Um, the, the order of events <laughs> that, that helped me let go of this was that first I, f- I noticed that for myself it didn't feel very good. So um, I'm going back to the three things I mentioned, pausing, preflection, and reflection as far as speech. So I first noticed it as a reflection in that, wow, you know, I don't, I don't feel very good that I've been participating in this kind of speech. And so then, after that, the next thing that happened was pausing. And so I began to pause before I was uh, about to engage in this kind of speech and just consider, uh, you know, am I, am I about to say something harsh about a third party in order to connect with the person that I'm with? And, and with that pause, I could start to see when... I was going in that direction and when I was maybe saying something that was true and beneficial and a, you know, a useful 
uh, judgment to make. You know, if I was asked in a meeting, what do you think about our policy on such and such? Great, I can give my opinion. But that's not, that's different from sitting in a locked office with someone else and, you know, kvetching. <laughs> and then, um, you know, and so then once I had that pause inserted, I, I could then um, preflect and consider my motive. And when I saw all of this, uh, and I really had those three realms of practice that I'd kind of looked at this, this way of speaking, it was actually really easy to drop that kind of speech. And I didn't worry so much about whether the other people dropped it. You know, if they were participating in that kind of speech, I simply didn't have to put energy into that. Um, if the moment were right, and this is where this displeasing part is, if the moment's right, it's possible to say, you know, I, I'm not comfortable with the way this conversation is going but it's not always the right moment to say that. So there's some discernment there. So I offer that as an example of, you know, a realm of speech that it took some, some different angles to work with. And I'm sure we can, you know, there are others, of course, and we can you know, find ways in our own life to, to do this. So right action is about obeying the other moral precepts that the Buddha laid out. So that means not to kill, not to take what is not given, and not to commit sexual misconduct. These are the broad categories that go in the, in the realm of right action. So at the top level, these seem quite obvious. Um, you know, we can say, I don't, I don't do those things generally. I don't kill, I don't steal, I don't commit sexual misconduct. But only a little bit of reflection um, reveals that these are, are fairly complex, can be complex areas of practice. Uh, but I'll add the caveat that they're mostly complex if we think about them too much. Um, no, but, but there, is, there is something to work with here in that, let me give a classic example of um, ants, right? Ants in the kitchen or ants somewhere else I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of this because I've been working with it myself. I live um, at a retreat center. I live at the Insight Retreat Center as a caretaker down in Scotts Valley. And we have a few ants down there, <laughs> um, it being out in the country, which is fine. And they, they come in my bathroom window and uh, walk around the shower and walk around the sink. And so I've thought about, you know, how to live with these friend, friendly beings who come in. And for the most part, um, in fact, in the, in the case of the bathroom, I really have a, an aversion to harming them or killing them. They're just, they're just walking through the bathroom. I don't feel any particular enmity toward them, except that uh, it's nice not to wash them down the drain when I turn on the shower. I feel bad about that. So I would like to discourage them from going in there because I may accidentally hurt them. Find them in the sink. If it's dark when I turn on the water, I might accidentally hurt them. So I, I've tried various measures. You know, I did the cinnamon. They're supposed to not cross that. That didn't really work that well. Um, they were not daunted. Um, I finally found that uh, it works pretty well to use um, sealant, you know, like tub sealant uh, around. If I could find the place where they were coming in, stick a spot of that there and over time I discouraged lots and lots of little places where they were coming in around the window and they eventually seemed to get more discouraged 
I also found that those microfiber rags, you know, that are so great at picking up dust, it just adheres to them. They pick up ants really well, too. And you can just, like, wipe it along the trail. It doesn't kill any of them. They all get sucked onto the microfiber. And then I just take that outside and leave it there, and they go away. So, I don't know. These are various tactics. Um, and for the most part, it's been a great relationship. You know, I talk to them, and, you know, they, they're, they're not bad. In fact, they haven't even been around the last couple of weeks. So, you know, I, I think that went pretty well. However, just below my bedroom is the kitchen in, in this retreat center. And there are also some ants that come in the kitchen. They're interested in the trash can that happens to be right there, although we keep that pretty clean. But we, we were a little worried about the pantry, which is across the kitchen, because the pantry has the brown sugar, the honey, the raisins, that kind of thing. And so, you know, we went to pretty big effort to do all those same tactics around the window where they were coming in in the kitchen. We did the cinnamon, we did the microfiber rag. You can even squirt them with vinegar to wipe out the trail. It doesn't kill them. They get stunned for a while, but the trail's gone. Uh, all those things, sealing up openings. But one day, um, I had, it was between retreats, and I hadn't been in the kitchen for a number of days. I use a different kitchen for myself. And um, they had invaded. They had walked in the window, down under the stove, across the floor, into the pantry, and into the raisins. Everywhere. So um, I looked at this, and it hurt a lot, but the thoughts came, this is a commercial kitchen, and we feed retreatants out of this kitchen, and we have a health department clearance from the county of Santa Cruz, and we get random health inspections, and if they come and they find ants, we would probably lose our license for that. And that would be a big pain, and we wouldn't be able to offer to the retreatants in the same way. This is a little bit of a you know disaster scenario that the mind creates, so I was aware of that. But truthfully, you know, it is a commercial kitchen, and that's really not acceptable. It's really not acceptable. So uh, it hurt my heart, but I wiped out that ant trail. Uh, going into the raisins, and I composted all the raisins. Um, and then, you know, made made stronger efforts. It was my own negligence. I hadn't been there for a number of days, so I make stronger effort now to go and uh, protect that window from the ants that are coming in. So it's it's a little complex, right? I don't know. I remember a story also by Angie Boisevain, who was the caretaker up at um, Chikoji for a while, and they had a problem with rats in their kitchen. That's a big one. Um, and so, but you no, know, nobody wanted to hurt these rats, and all the poor rats. Um, so they tried everything, you know, all the measures they could think of to do it humanely. And in the end, um, she got up late at night, set rat traps, got up early in the morning, collected the rats out of them, and nobody else there knew that she did that. Um, and they got rid of the rats. So, what do we do with our, you know, it's, it's our response. What do we do? So the apparent complexity of uh, sila is actually quite simple. We'll get to that. But the apparent complexity does continue with right livelihood. At the gross level, right livelihood means not making our living through trafficking in five areas. 
weapons, living, living beings, meat, intoxicants, or poisons. And, you know, if we're doing those things, it's considered wrong livelihood. But uh, it's intended, actually, that it goes a little deeper than that. A right livelihood extends to the ways that we support our life, which means the way we use our materials in our life, water, air, oil, plastic, how we relate to our possessions, our power, and other people in our lives. How are we living? How are we living from day to day, gaining support from... We need support from all kinds of other people, all kinds of physical things to keep our bodies alive. How do we relate to all of that is right livelihood. And it's not always simple if you start thinking about it too much. If you pay taxes, for example, do you pay your taxes? Well, a fraction of those go to support war. If we don't pay our taxes, though, we're not supporting all kinds of road building and other beneficial things. If we buy organic, that's good. We're supporting that kind of agriculture. Um, Our dollars do matter in a capitalist economy. On the other hand, we're still supporting a capitalist economy. (laughs) Um, Whole Foods is a large chain. Okay, so we buy locally, but even there, there's all kinds of things going on. So... If we buy anything that has a long supply chain that extends back to Asia or Africa somewhere, almost certainly some kind of wrong behavior is being supported. It's just true. So the apparent complexity of sila, I would like to suggest, of of working with the precepts, can be alleviated by taking a wider view in most cases. We can ask more simply, are we holding the things of our lives lightly? and using them wisely and or with compassion? Do we use them in such a way that our mental state as we use them is wholesome? This is now moving more into the meditative realm, pointing toward uh, the samadhi steps of the path. So for example, righteous anger or extreme guilt or fear uh, are not wholesome states, although they are a common motivation for shaping our actions and our opinions but those are not a wholesome state of mind. So can we have a a more wholesome state of mind as we use the things that we use and do the things that we do and make the money that helps support our lives? So it's important to realize that the precepts are not commandments. They're not coming from an external authority that's going to judge us on our performance, although we may judge ourselves, right? (laughs) It's really not how it works. Um, the, practice, the, the precepts are practices that we continually develop. They're actually called training rules. For the most part, we're training our mind by behaving in this way. Sometimes people think that sila is kind of a preliminary practice, maybe kind of lesser than meditation or wisdom, other things that are, we're developing. But there's a sutta that says... Um, says, whatever living beings there are which assume the four postures, sometimes walking, sometimes standing, sometimes sitting, sometimes lying down, all do so based upon the earth, established upon the earth. So too, based upon virtue, established upon virtue, a practitioner develops and cultivates the seven factors of enlightenment. So that says that the very things in our mind that lead to enlightenment are established on a foundation of what? Of virtue. 
It's incredibly important. It's a critical practice. So the purpose of sila is no less than to create the condition for the development of the factors of enlightenment, which are what lead to awakening. So we follow them to cultivate a mind that has these qualities naturally. So how do we learn sila or learn about its importance if we've, you know, if we've decided this is going to be the foundation? At a top level, of course, we, you know, we hear teachings or we hear admonishments, maybe first from our parents, but also from friends and teachers and so forth. So we kind of learn what the, you know, what the, the rules are, if you will, externally. But again, they're, they're not coming from an external authority. So that's really only a kind of an, an early way that we do it. More often, um, we learn things by modeling from other people. We learn by observation. And this can often happen subconsciously. Children are watching their parents. Students are watching their teachers. We get all kinds of nonverbal cues in seen and unseen ways. But the best teacher is actually mindfulness, which is part of the samadhi steps of the path, part of the, the next set. So here's another interlinking. When we're mindful in the right way, what we become aware of is tension. Has anybody noticed this in sitting, you, that you physically begin to notice physical tension as soon as you sit? So that's the, one of the functions of mindfulness. Of course, it has many others, but one of them is to point out our suffering and the tension in our lives. And so as we become aware and start paying attention to what we're doing as we're doing it, then we detect these areas of wrong actions, wrong speech, uh, as some sort of contraction or, or tension or discomfort or feeling of offness, dukkha, physical, mental, or emotional. could also be kind of a darkening or a fuzzing over, a disconnection. We start to feel more subtly in our, through mindfulness this um, movement in our mind as things start to go off the path in some direction. So in this way, we learn to model for ourselves. Maybe we watch other people for a while, but then we start to watch our own internal sense. How do I feel about what I'm doing? How do I feel about this situation? How am I going to respond? So we're actually learning from our own heart's wisdom, and we can let go into that and actually trust the actions that arise without necessarily knowing in advance what they're going to be. This is the birth of what's called hiri otapa, uh, the guardians of the world, respect for ourselves and respect for others, that we generate this, this sense of just wanting to be in alignment. One time I was going to ride the light rail down um, a little farther down the peninsula and I dashed up to the train just as it was pulling in and, and I didn't have time to buy a ticket at the station and on the light rail, you can't buy any tickets on the train. You can only buy them at the stations. But I was late, so I just got on, and I didn't have a ticket. So I was a little bit nervous uh, throughout the ride that you know somebody might come through and ask for tickets. But I guess you could say I was fortunate <laughs> that ride, and it didn't happen. Um, I got to my destination. And when I got off, I bought a ticket. And then, um, then just recycled it seemed like the right thing to do. 
So there's a shift as we start to work with this feeling of naturalness and, you know, what's the right thing to do. The path is not just prescriptive, but it's descriptive. It becomes that our behavior begins to resemble what the path says it will (laughs) as time goes on. It's a natural process. It becomes more and more so over time. So there are some principles that can guide our practice of sila overall. The first is to use a lot of compassion, bring a lot of compassion to this kind of work. I found this nice quote about working with, working with the precepts. Working with any of the precepts is not about engaging the superego. The precepts are moral principles in a sense, but they aren't out there, separate from us, to be held up as standards with which to criticize ourselves when we fall short, or, even worse, to criticize others when they fall short. Nor are the precepts moral straitjackets for controlling our own behavior or anyone else's. Instead, they express what the realized person does naturally. So with all the precepts, we need to work in a way that liberates rather than confines us. And that means using, not using the precept to reject any part of ourselves. So we find ways to include more and more of, of ourselves and to bring the best of ourselves to all of our actions. Another thing that's helpful is to remember that, um, that restraint is a form of cultivation. So I know for sure that um, sometimes I felt like I wasn't doing anything actively to cultivate certain things. And, you know, I was just in a period of my practice where I just wanted to sit quietly and work on things on my own. But and I wasn't really, you know, out in the world thinking of things to do, engaging. Um, you know, I'm, this week I'm working on such and such. I felt like I was kind of drifting. But actually, it was really helpful for me when a teacher pointed out that simply not doing harmful things is actually the cultivation of positive aspects. In, um, in the Theravadan tradition, the non-occurrence of something un- unwholesome is equated with the presence of its wholesome opposite. So if we're refraining from taking life, if we got through all of today without killing, <laughs> um, we have to some degree cultivated compassion you know, or you know, respect for life by doing a whole day's worth of non-harm, we've actually stocked up quite a lot of merit, if you, if you think in those terms. Sometimes people have a negative response to ideas like ethical restraint. It sounds stodgy or limiting, but actually it's a beautiful practice um, just not to, not to do harmful things. So that leads to the third way that it's helpful to cultivate sila, which is uh, through reflection, to, to take some time at the end of the day to review briefly what happened. Uh, you know, how did things go today in terms of my responses to the inevitable changing circumstances of life? And don't forget, when you do that, to include all the restraint, all the times that you thought about saying th- something but decided not to, or, you know, simply didn't, didn't fall for a temptation that arose in your mind briefly. Just let it go. It's okay that it was there. You're not a bad person for having that. Just don't act on it. 
I want to talk briefly now about some of the, the fruits of sila practice. You know, what, is, what happens when we work in this way and develop this part of the path? It is said that practicing the sila steps eliminates a particular stain, as it's called, or a particular form of suffering, and that is the suffering of transgression. It's a kind of a dramatic word, but basically it means that we're removing the actions and speech that cause harm to ourselves and others. And the less we do those things, for sure, the better we feel and the more happiness we have in our lives, the less contraction we're feeling, the less tension, the less suffering. So the suffering of transgression. So because sila is relational, um, let's mention also the benefits that sila offers to others. Probably the biggest one is fearlessness. We offer safety to others when they know that our behavior is reliable and true and harmless. I know that I've felt incredibly safe around people that I knew were practicing simply because of that. For example, I went to visit San Quentin last Friday, and I had the wonderful privilege of being in a class with with a group of inmates who were practicing very diligently um, the, uh, the mindfulness meditation practice and also working on themselves personally as they were practicing sila. And sitting in that room as they talked about their lives and talked about ways that they were working on themselves, I felt incredibly safe with those people and maybe safer than I felt in some other other situations. You know, these are you know really good intentions in that room. And also practicing the sila steps generally helps other beings to connect with their own goodness in ways that they might not be able to see for themselves. So it's said in the Dhammapada, of all the fragrance of all the fragrances, sandalwood, tagara, blue lotus, and jasmine, the fragrance of virtue is the sweetest. <laughs> so I, I think we get this intuitively, is that when we're around people of very high integrity, we, we sort of feel that part of ourselves also. You know, we feel like, yeah, I can, you know, I want to speak well and I want to behave well in the presence of this highly, you know, this person with a lot of integrity. I've certainly felt that around teachers or around some monastics. So there are fruits for ourselves also from sila. Um, To others we offer fearlessness and to ourselves we offer blamelessness. That's kind of the internal side When sila is fully established in ourselves, it is said that one can stand before any assembly of people and feel blameless. Imagine what it would feel like to have that feeling about yourself. I can be anywhere and feel blameless. That in in itself is a huge letting go of suffering to be able to have that feeling. A second fruit is confidence. Practicing sila Uh, cultivates confidence in ourselves. This quote I'm about to read is about speech, but it could apply equally to sila in general. From the habit of speaking truthfully, confidence is acquired, since there is no need then to dissemble or conceal the truth. Moreover, the speaker of truth inspires confidence in others who come to know that they may rely implicitly on his or her words. There's an alternative formulation of the path that only has five steps, 
and all of the sealer portion is rolled into the single quality of confidence. It's kind of interesting. So a third fruit of sila practice is uh, that it's a, and this is a little hard to describe, but it's a, it's a gateway into the subtlety and depth of this practice. You know, I mentioned earlier that the sila steps are not just preliminary, easy things that you have to do in order to get along to the more serious things. Actually, um, sila goes deeper and deeper as long as we are walking the path. More and more layers of it unfold. So here's just a small example of a way that we start to to become a little bit more subtle in our interaction. And that is to notice that truthfulness and consistency are not the same thing. Okay, that's one one area that I've worked with because I think truthfulness is an interesting practice. When am I speaking the truth? How am I speaking the truth? How do I know something is the truth? And I've learned that I had a false connection in my mind between truth and consistency. Um, So let me just give an example to bring that out a bit. I was speaking with the other caretaker at the center where I live at IRC, and I was just speaking casually, and I said something like, um, I'll be home by 7 o'clock tonight. And she paused there, because that was the first time. I, I just moved in there a few months ago. That was the first time I'd said the word home about referring to living there. And so we kind of um, shared a moment of connection that, yeah, this is home, and look, Kim, you now see this as your home. Isn't that interesting? And it was a nice moment. Um, but then later, literally just a, a day or two later, I was um, speaking with the manager of a retreat that was happening at that time, and she was feeling a little bit awkward about the fact that the teachers on that retreat were spending a lot of time in the common space uh, downstairs where I usually um, live in between retreats. And so um, she said something like a little bit casually, well, I mean, it's kind of mi casa, su casa, my house, your house, but still we're sorry that we're using your space so much. And you know, she was trying to kind of make that right in our relationship. And so I actually wasn't feeling particularly put upon so I you know I I wanted to ease her tension and so I said something like well you know it's it's not really Mikasa anyway you know it's I I, I was sort of implying it's not like I own the place and you're imposing you know this is a retreat center and there's a retreat running so of course it's fine that you're here using the space so so which is it you know is it my home or not really um and so the consistency police might come and say, you don't have a consistent view about that. So, you know, you're, you're flip-flopping, you're wrong, blah, blah, blah. Which, which is it? Let's, let's nail you down here. Um, but actually, uh, I would say that what I said was right speech in each case. The truth of that moment when I said I'll be home by such and such is that at that moment I thought of it as my home. And later when somebody was saying, we're sorry to impose on your home, and I said, oh, it's not, not my home anyway. That was true at that moment, too. Truth and consistency are not, not the same. And so we might be careful about how we apply that to other people and you know, require that they say the same thing in different circumstances. Different conditions mean that there are different truths present. So we begin to understand, as we practice sila, that ethical conduct is not a set of particular actions. If it were, we could memorize them, master them, and be done. Does anybody think that's really how it works? 
Now, we do spend some effort trying to do this, most of us. We get burned in some situation, for example, and we think about it and we say, okay, that's it, I'm never doing that again. Or whenever this situation comes up, I'm always going to remember to say such and such. And we create a rule in our head, right? This is how it needs to be. And then, inevitably, a similar case arises, and we play that tape, and we say, oh, I remember now, I'm going to do such and such, and it's totally the wrong thing, right? We've, um, we're simply acting out of the past. We're solving yesterday's problem, but today there's a different response required. So it, it really doesn't work to create little rules like that in our mind, even though we do it all the time. It's a very strong habit. Actually, ethical conduct arises from the moment. It's unique to that situation. And it's as simple as what I mentioned earlier, looking into our heart and feeling, is what I'm about to say or do leading to a contraction, leading to a separation, or is it staying open, staying spacious, staying connected, staying aware? So to really practice sila, we begin to understand that we need mental cultivation. The next steps of the path are what's going to refine the sila steps We need awareness. We need some strength of effort. We need some focus and collectedness to our mind. Those are exactly the samadhi steps of the path that we'll talk about next week. We're just about out of time, but I'd like to mention a couple of other connections that, that happen between sila and the other portions of the path. Remember I said there's the sila steps, the three ethical conduct. There's the samadhi steps, the three mental development. And there's the wisdom steps, the two that are related to, uh, to wisdom, to understanding. So how are these related to sila? Well, wholesome and unwholesome intentions, the second step of the path, part of the wisdom component, are what lead to wholesome and unwholesome actions. Good intentions lead to good karmic actions. Poor intentions lead to harmful actions. Truly free actions, of course, arise out of the emptiness of right view. Truly free actions. So these are definitely related. Essentially, the sila steps are the application of intention into our worldly life. We're asked to manifest the intentions of renunciation, of compassion and loving kindness in real ways in our life, moment to moment. So that wisdom gets enacted through the sila steps. So we set up kind of a resonance. Um, Sila is also what allows us to calm our mind in meditation. We all know times when we sat down and the whole sitting was devoted to regretting what we said before we sat down. (laughs) And so, of course, the more we practice right conduct and let go of various things from the past, the calmer our mind can be. The calmer our mind is, the clearer we can see what we're doing in our lives the even better we can act. So we set up a resonance between calmness, clarity, and between good actions. And all of those are what enable wisdom to come into our life. So next week, we'll talk a little bit more detail about the mental development and the meditative components of the path and how those relate, again, to the to the other portions. But the the shift of what we go into in detail is going to shift next week. So, thank you all.